You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, Citizens Church, Colossians chapter 3. Hopefully your uh, Bibles are already open there. We're going to be in verses 1 through 4 again this morning like we were uh, last Sunday for Easter. Before we turn our attention to Colossians, I do just want to pause again and acknowledge uh, that these are difficult times, and many of you uh, have been affected uh, in uh, really tragic ways, in really difficult uh, ways. And so, as a church, uh, our promise uh, and our desire is that you uh, would not walk through that difficulty alone. If you have needs, if you need prayer, uh, if you need spiritual guidance, if you have physical needs or financial needs, would you please make those needs known to us? God cares about your needs, and we as the church care about your needs. And you can make those needs known just by emailing us at requests at citizenschurch.com, requests at citizenschurch.com, and someone from our family will uh, respond to you. Please consider doing that. We love you, and we are in this together. In Colossians chapter 3, I know we were there uh, last Sunday, but really uh, in chapter 3, it begins a new conversation, uh, and we together begin a a new conversation, and it's a conversation about change. It's a conversation about uh, life transformation that happens, that's available rather, uh, to every Christian. And this is a conversation I uh, have been eager to have uh, as a church for uh, over a year now. Uh, And what I mean by that is it was this time last year that I decided that the first book of the Bible we would go through together as Citizens Church was going to be the book of Colossians. And this uh, feels like forever ago, but it was uh, last year, really was Palm Sunday last year that was our last Sunday to stream uh, Matt Chandler from Flower Mound. And Easter, even though we weren't yet citizens, Easter uh, was uh, really our first Sunday to, to do local preaching, and we've been doing local preaching uh, ever since. And so it was this weird time a year ago uh, where we were uh, not yet fully citizens, but kind of citizens. And, and I knew that when September came, uh, we would have our commissioning service, and then the very next Sunday, we would be our own church, you know, finally and formally Citizens Church. And what we would do, one of the first things we would do together is a sermon series, and, and that sermon series would not be just our first sermon series together, but really it would be us launching a church together. And I landed on Colossians because there were a few things about the book of Colossians that I knew would, would feed the soil of our young church, that we would continue bearing fruit, a few things about the book of Colossians that would, that would build on a solid foundation so that we would continue uh, growing and being stable. And so one of those was that in the book of Colossians, you have this beautiful Christology. T- to say it another way, the book of Colossians says over and again in many poetic ways that Jesus is enough that Jesus is enough for the Christian, that Jesus is enough for the church. And I knew as we went from being a campus to a church, I knew I would need that. I believed our church would need that. And what I didn't know is how much that would be true, that we've walked through difficulty together and we have needed that reminder. And then even now, uh, being in another difficult season, I just can't tell you how many times I have uh, I've whispered to myself that truth from Colossians 1.17, in him all things hold together. 
in him the church holds together. Jesus is holding our lives together, and he is enough for us. And then another thing I knew that the book would say uh, is, is, is that behind the story of Colossians is this guy that most of us have never heard of, a guy named Epaphras, and he planted the church in Colossae, and, and uh, it's the story of an ordinary person doing an extraordinary thing in Jesus' name and bringing the gospel to his hometown and a church is planted out of that. And we just need more of that. We need more of that kind of reminder at a time when it's easy to believe that it's only the extraordinary people with large platforms and massive followings who are used by God. And and the book of Colossians reminds us that's not true. We are all invited into the story of God to, to in meaningful ways do extraordinary things in Jesus' name. And then I knew this book, this is where we'll go this morning and, and where we'll stay for several weeks. I knew this book would hold up for us the truth that radical life change comes from following Jesus, that we as Christians get to change. Two truths two Christian truths uh, about the Christian life, and if you lose either, you lose Christianity. Here's the first one. The first truth is that God does not require of you to clean up your life before coming to him, that God, uh, right where you are, he will meet you. In your sin, he will meet you. In your mess, he will meet you. And he does not say, clean up and then come to me. He says, right where you are, I will come to you with the love of God and the power of Christ crucified and risen again. And he will meet us in our sin and love us right where we are. It's why the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's why the Bible says that God justifies the ungodly. It's why we sing some of the old songs that we sing. If you're like me, I grew up in an old church with uncomfortable pews and ugly carpet, and we sang in that old church a beautiful song that said, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bid me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, just as I am, that Uh, all that we've been saying from chapter 2, that in Christ we don't have to earn God's love, we don't have to prove God's love. Truth number one, you are loved by God and Jesus just as you are. Truth number two, those who follow Jesus, those who are loved by God in Jesus, will not stay the same. We will not stay the same. We will change, not just we will change, but we get to change, meaning that in Jesus, we actually have the resources to change. We don't have to stay the way that we are, and that's an important truth for every church, especially an important truth for a young church to hold on to because so much of the mission of the church, the reason that we exist together is to be formed together, to change together. We don't simply exist together that we we attend services together, but we exist together that we might become something together, that we would change together. And our church is committed to shouting those truths over and over again. Come as you are, just as you are, and from a place of being loved and accepted, begin to become different. 
that second truth is where the book of Colossians turns its attention starting in chapter 3. Chapter 2 is who you are in Jesus, your identity in Jesus. We spent four weeks there, and then chapter 3 begins with these words, if, then, and then launches into this appeal for change and offers this picture of change. It's going to say, put to death what is earthly in you, uh, idolatry and sexual immorality, and don't lie to each other and put away anger and then put on kindness and humility and patience and forgiveness and sing together and read the word of God together and be this kind of dad and be this kind of mom and be this kind of spouse and be this kind of worker and be this kind of worshiper. And it covers every aspect of life as if to say that Jesus, uh, there's no part of our life that remains unchanged by Jesus, because it's true to follow him is to be changed by him. Now, uh, by change, I want to be more specific. Um, We mean formation. Uh, It's not just any change that we're being formed into something. A few decades ago, Uh, This word formation began being used by guys like Dallas Willard, and many churches uh, use that word or the phrase spiritual formation to capture the specific change that happens in the Christian life, that we are specifically, not just any change, but we're formed into the likeness of Jesus. Here's why that's important. One of the reasons why that's important. The desire for change is not a Christian desire. Uh, And the promise of change is not just a Christian promise. There are plenty of people who want to change, plenty of people who want to go from angry to peaceful, plenty of people who want to go from addicted to sober, plenty of people who want to be less anxious, uh, and and plenty of people who, who, who want to be a better spouse or a better parent or generally just want to become a better person. And there are plenty of belief systems, religious and non-religious, that will tell you how to be that and will tell you how to, how to change. And some of those can even bring good change in people's life, right? That the self-help industry is alive and well in the Western culture because people want to change. They want to improve themselves. They want to evolve. They want to mature. And maybe even some of that is why you're here. There's a desire for change that brought you here to become less angry or less anxious or there's things about your marriage that you know need to change and you want to become more godly or maybe there's someone else in your life that you want to change and you think church will help you help them change. And so because of all of that, because the word change is just so filled with different expectations and different kinds of meanings because the desire is is so universal, it is important to be clear that what Christianity means What Christianity offers is a vision for change that is very specific. It's formation. It's being formed into the likeness of Jesus. It is not first and foremost that I have a fear problem and I come to church to get peace or I come to church because I need moral therapy or I come because I need motivation or come to Jesus because I need those things. It's that I, as a Christian, want to be formed and and being called to be formed into the likeness of Jesus. We want to become truly human together. And the way that we become truly human is by becoming like the most true human there ever was, Jesus. This is so deeply important to me as a pastor. 
and so deeply important to us as a church because there's so much misunderstanding and so much of mixed motivations. And let me just get into this story. I called a man several years ago, and I was calling a man who grew up in church, and he was active in a church that I pastored and served in one of our ministries. And the reason that I was calling him, the reason I picked up my phone dialed his number is because he... After all of his years in church and after all of his serving, he had decided to leave his wife and kids and pursue a relationship with another woman. And he answered the phone and he knew why I was calling and so I just said, don't do this. Don't do this. This is not what God wants. And he immediately fired back. God wants me to be happy. Look, um. I know that sin is deceptive, and I understand that, and, and I know that restoration and mercy and grace is possible for all. That's not my point. My point is what struck me in the conversation is that this man was not someone who said, God doesn't is- exist, and so I will do what I want. He is someone who believed in God, active in church, claimed Christianity, and was wrong about what God wants. Look. God wants for us the change that he calls us into and the formation that he envisions and invites in all of our lives is to become like Jesus in any pursuit of change or any pursuit of happiness that does not reflect Jesus. It will lead to ruin. And so the point is that loved as we are and as a people who are loved by Jesus right where we are, our greatest aim then in life is to become like him, not just after improvement and not just after life change, but after Christ and becoming like Christ. One of my favorite illustrations for this, I've shared it before, maybe a long time ago, but there's a sculptor, a famous sculptor who was hired to sculpt a horse for some sort of uh, fundraiser dinner or some sort of fancy banquet. And so what he did was he he made this beautiful ice sculpture of a horse and it was on display uh, at the banquet and, and everyone marveled at it and it got a lot of press. And so someone was interviewing the artist afterwards and they said, look, how do you do it? How do you produce something so beautiful? How do you sculpt something that's just so wonderful? And his response was this. He said, I start with a block of ice and I get my tools and I start chipping away and I chip away at everything that doesn't look like a horse. What formation in the Christian life is, the journey that God has invited all of us on is God as the sculptor from a place of love chipping away at all of the areas of our life that don't look like Jesus. And that's the journey that I am on as a person, as a Christian. That's the journey that you are on. That is uh, the aim of us together as a church, to become like Christ, to be formed like Jesus. Colossians 3 and on in the book is going to answer three questions about that formation. It's going to answer why, how, and what. Why does it matter? How does it happen? And what does it look like? And in the remaining 15 minutes that we have together this morning, I just want to answer that first question from verses 1 through 4. Why does it matter? And it matters for two reasons. It matters because Jesus is king, 
and it matters because of who you are. Look at verse 1, chapter 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. What verses 1 through 4 describes is a Christian claim about what is going on in the world. It's it's going to invite change within that claim, and the claim is this, Jesus is king, that he is restoring the world by bringing his kingdom. The old world is passing away. The perfect world is here already, and it's coming. It's not yet here in full. And change matters. Becoming like Jesus matters because we believe he's king, and we believe that this story is true. You can think about it uh, like this, that uh, our lives right now during COVID-19, they are marked by change. And they're marked by change because of what is truly happening in the world. There is this virus that's highly contagious and people are getting sick and and, and people are dying. And there's this risk that it spreads at a rate that collapses the healthcare system. And there's just all of this devastating consequences of that. And so because of that, the response to that news, the response to that truth is to remain home, to, to change, to uh, to change our lives, to save lives. And that's what we've done. We've uh, mostly ordered groceries online and we're only going out for essentials and we are homeschooling our kids and doing church online and we're surviving on Zoom calls and incredible internet memes and walks around the neighborhood. And, and it's out of caution and hopefully also out of love for others. And we've changed because changing mattered because of what's going on in the world. It mattered because staying home protects people because there's a pandemic. And if it wasn't true, none of these changes would make sense. But because it is true, it matters. Now, hear me. The gospel and a global pandemic are not the same thing, and that's not my point. They're very different. But hear me. They belong to the same category. Here's what I mean. They are both news headlines about what is going on in the world. They are both current events. The Christian claim that Jesus is king is not some sort of distant spiritual sentiment. What it is, is it is a present reality. He's king of the world. His kingdom is breaking in. It matters how we live, and the degree to which we believe that is true will be reflected and how we change. Because it's within that story that as we change to look like Jesus, we honor the one who we say is in charge of not just our life, but we honor the one who we believe is in charge of the world, and we at the same time reflect that new world to the present world. We offer a picture of Jesus. And and I think often we read the claims of Christianity, or at least we respond to the claims of Christianity the way that we would our favorite uh, fiction novel or the way that we would our favorite fantasy movie, right? Like if you're into Star Wars, if you're into Avengers, you love the story, you're endeared to the characters, you're inspired by their courage and it's entertaining, right? And and you're moved by the drama and maybe you have your favorite quotes and your favorite lines and you debate with friends about what it all means, right? And, 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 and But 
all the while, because it's fiction, because it's fantasy, all the while uh, careful not to let that story bleed too far into my reality or else I get weird, right? Because it's just story, because it is fiction. And I'm not saying that what we would say with our mouths is that we believe the story of Jesus is fake, but too often how we function is that it's just meaningful fiction. It's inspiring and we're moved by the drama. And hear me, the Bible, the early church, the history of Christianity is the declaration of Christ and his kingdom is in a completely different category. Not only is it not fiction and it is true, but it belongs to the category of current event, of what is currently going on in the world. Jesus is king. And here's how we tell that story. I belong to the kingdom that both is and is coming. And I live in a time where God in the past took on flesh, walked the earth as a man. He died on a cross. He rose again, ascended to the right hand of the Father. He is right now rightfully ruling and reigning over all of creation. He's present through his spirit among his people in the world and is one day returning to the world. That's the news. That's the story. And my life changes because he is in charge of my life. And my life changes because I represent his kingdom to the world. And it matters because it's true. How? How could we believe that and not change and stay the same? Jesus is king. And where it gets difficult is, is these kinds of truths, what it'll expose is that there are so many of us that came into Christianity for something else, meaning we didn't come into Christianity looking for a king and, and believing that Jesus is king and he's brought a kingdom. Maybe we came into Christianity just looking for Jesus to get me out of hell. And, and that story is that, um, look, he, he gets you out of hell and because he gets you out of hell, you know where you're going when you die and really that's it. That's the point. That's Christianity. And maybe that's the story you believe because that's the story that you were told in some sort of sermon. And that sermon went something like, look, you don't want to go to hell. You want to go to heaven. Jesus can get you there. Pray this prayer. Repeat after me and then walk an aisle. And then it just stops. Hear me. I'm not denying those things. Jesus saved, Jesus saved me, Jamin, from an eternity apart from God. That is true. But those pieces belong to a much larger story, and for so many, that's as far as they get. Many of us have been shaped by pockets of the evangelical movement that preached a message of conversion and left out the message of formation, left out the message of discipleship, and never offered answers to the why question, offered a list of do's and don'ts, and offered a lot of right and wrong, and weaponized all of that with guilt language, and yet never answered, why does it matter how I talk? Why does it matter how I love? Why does it matter who I love? Why does it matter if I hold on to anger and unforgiveness? And so that a misconceived version of Christianity creates a type of Christian that cares about escaping judgment but doesn't care about becoming like Jesus and believes that what Jesus tells me is how to live in heaven for eternity, but Jesus does not tell me how to live right now on earth. Or maybe some of us came not looking for Jesus to be king, but we came looking for Jesus to just help me get where I want to go. Maybe the story that competes most aggressively with Christianity 
is the story of progress. And that's this, this, this story that is just infused in our culture. And what it says is a life well lived is a life that's always progressing. Meaning and mattering and value in life is measured by increase in life. And so what we mean is as I move from one season of life into another, that movement is marked by increase, increased uh, possessions, increased influence, increased status, increased achievement, increased uh, you know, social standing, increase in wealth and resources. It's why we don't call, or it's why we call our, our first home a starter home. It's just the beginning. It's not the home that you're going to stay in. From here, you'll get on to bigger and better and nicer, right? And there is in that a perpetual gaze into the future, that whatever season I'm in now, I'm always gazing into what I hope to be is a better future, and I am working in the present to make sure what's next is better than what is. And we believe that the story of life is the story of making something of myself, of always moving up. And I'm a Christian, so what do I do with Jesus? Well, I go to church and I know some of the stories. And so largely what that means is I'm hoping Jesus joins me in my project of progression. I'm hoping that Jesus will help me get where I want to go. And maybe through good behavior, he shows me a little favor. Or maybe through good behavior, he helps things go my way. And the problem in that misconception is not that all of the change that happens as we improve or as we progress, that all of that is intrinsically bad. The problem is, is it puts as the emphasis of our life change that matters, but doesn't matter most. If Jesus is truly Lord of the world, if he's really coming again one day, if his kingdom, his, his perfect world that was future has broken into the present and we're invited to live under his rule and reign. I do not ask him to help me create the life I want. I ask him, King Jesus, what does it look like to truly live? And his answer and his teachings over and again is not grow in wealth or grow in status or, or grow in possessions, although there's nothing wrong with those things. His answer over and again is grow in love, grow in mercy, grow in kindness, become like me, love the way that I've loved, forgive the way that I forgive. And the, and the danger in defining our life and value by the way that we progress through life is not that, that, that all of our hopes for our life fail. The real danger is that we get where we want to go and yet we look no more like Jesus than when we started and that means that we have squandered our life because the change that mattered most to us is not the change that matters most. It's not the change that matters most according to Jesus. Listen, if he is ruling and reigning over the world, if it's true, change matters because he is king and it means the greatest aim of my life is to become like him. There's a letter written in the second century and it's called the Epistle to Diognetus and it's fascinating and we don't know who wrote it but it was written to uh, someone who was maybe considering Christianity or somebody who doubted Christianity or, or maybe they were just curious about it and so it was written about Christians living in second century Roman Empire. And the letter, part of the letter, has this description of what Christian life looked like then. It's a description of how Christians lived 
then. And as I read snippets of that description, listen for if it reminds you of anyone. These Christians, they dwell in their own countries, but simply as sojourners. As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as if foreigners. They marry as do all others. They beget children, but they do not destroy their offspring. They have a common table, but not a common bed. They are in the flesh, but they do not live after the flesh. They pass their days on earth, but they are citizens of heaven. Shout out. They love all men and are persecuted by all. They are unknown and condemned. They are put to death and restored to life. They are in lack of all things, yet abound in all. They are reviled and blessed. They are insulted and repay the insult with honor. They do good, yet are punished as evildoers. When punished, they rejoice as if quickened into life. To sum it all up in one word, what the soul is to the body, that are Christians in the world. Just observing the life of Christians years ago. And, and from those observations, they describe their life. And what does the description sound like? Who does the description sound like? Jesus. In the flesh, didn't live after the flesh, lack all things, but abound in all. What the soul is to the body, they are in the world. It's a picture of Jesus. And without even using Jesus' name, you hear him in their lives. You see him represented in their lives. Now, we know they weren't perfect, and we know this wasn't without sin, but what we hear is they believe about Jesus, what he says about himself, and so they reflect him out into the world. They reflect what is true in the world. In reading this a few times, when I read this, I just ask myself, if someone were to write a description of me, of my life, if somebody were to write a description of how I love, how I live, how I handle pain, how I respond to crisis, how I treat my kids, how I respond in temptation, the question is, would the description that they offer of my life, would that description of me offer a picture of Jesus? Would it remind people of him? Would it describe him even without using his name? And my honest answer is that there is a lot that needs to be chipped away still so many areas of my life that do not yet look like Jesus, and they won't be done until he returns. But maybe the better question, at least for us this morning as we're beginning this conversation, maybe the better question is, is that the change that I most want in my life? Is that the change I'm most after in my life? Is my chief aim in life, worshiping God, obedience to Jesus, so that my life is conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus, that I delight in God using circumstances in my life to chip away the parts of me that don't look like Jesus, that I delight in and seek after relationships that are going to help me become more like Christ, because it's true because I believe he is the sovereign king of the world, bringing his new kingdom. That may land heavy on some of you. It, it, it lands heavy on me. My default is to go maybe towards guilt or to go towards resolutions, all of these things that I'm going to, 
to now fix to look more like Jesus. And so where I want to end is I want to end with reason number two. Why does it matter that we look like Jesus? Because it's true that Jesus is king, but it also matters that we look like Jesus because it's already who we are. You remember chapter two. Chapter two is all about who we are in Jesus, all about what we've already been declared to be in Jesus. It's already who we are. My first semester of Bible college, I walked into my first class of Bible college, and I received something that I did not expect, the professors passing out these pieces of paper, and I thought it was a syllabus, and I I turned it over, and it's a college degree, and it has a uh, my name written on it, misspelled, of course, that's all my life, uh, but it was awarding me the degree that I was after, the degree that I was going to try to get in four to eight years, and so it's this Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies awarded to Jamon Roller is what it said, and, and it was fake, obviously, but I got it, and I thought, huh, I'm curious, what does this mean? The professor prays to open the class, and then he said this, you all got a degree this morning. And can you imagine if this was real? Can you imagine if your first day of class, you got the degree that you had come here to get? And it's before you've taken a single test and before you've ever written a paper and before you defended a thesis, before you read a book, you just showed up and you got the degree. And imagine that you stayed and took classes for four years. It would not be if you already have the degree and if you stayed and you took all the classes and you took all the tests and you read all the books, it would not be to earn graduation. It would not be to earn a degree. It would be to become what you've already been declared to be. And then he said, that is Christianity. That in Jesus, if then you have been raised, verse 1 says. The way Paul says it in Ephesians is, is you have been seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Everything about him is declared over us. The moment God meets us right where we are in our mess, in our sin, we are declared pure and righteous and holy and blameless and accepted by God. We are declared to be like Jesus in status, in the eyes of God. And so becoming like him in our life is us simply becoming in practice who we already are in the eyes of God. Together, we're invited to look like Jesus, to change, to be formed, to become like him. And it matters because Jesus is king. It matters because it's who we already are in Christ. God, we love you, and we thank you that you don't leave us the way that we are. You you award us the purity, and you award us the righteousness, and you award us the love the moment we repent and believe. And so, King Jesus, we want to reflect you to the world, and what it means is it means none of the obedience is wasted, none of the things that you've brought into our lives that make us look more like you, uh, none of it is wasted. The great aim of our life in love for you is to look like you, Jesus. Help us. We believe together that it matters. Help us. We love you. Amen.